There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Nicholas Carter, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks so much for having me. From my perspective, it's a real honour. I've been a massive fan of your work for quite some time and I'm totally impressed with all the work that you do. So to, to have this opportunity to sit down and have a chat with you is a real personal thrill for me. And Jeremy's a big fan. No, he's probably, he may not be as familiar with your work, but Jeremy, how are you? Mate, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not looking forward to this chat. I am a plant-rich diet person. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm plant-based, but certainly looking forward to having a chat and, and Nicholas, thanks for jumping on. And actually, mate, where are you calling from? Yeah, I'm from the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I don't think cool. we've ever done a podcast and, out of Nova Scotia, so. <laughs> yeah, probably not. And just to give you some context, so Jeremy mentions his diet, and we've often had some entertaining discussions around the link between the planetary health and food systems. So, And obviously, this is a space that you've sort of been in for a long time, but I'm keen to get a bit of a backstory from yourself in terms of, okay, how did you personally become interested in this link between food systems and our environment? So I don't know exactly when it started. As a kid, I had a love for nature, had a love for going out in the woods, going on hikes, you know, seeing the ocean, seeing waterfalls, things like that. So I definitely had that like kind of early appreciation for it. That followed me, you know, throughout my life. And I actually went into an undergrad in commerce and marketing, really mostly just to kind of understand a bit more of how the world works because so much is run by economics, right? You know, it was during that undergrad where documentaries like The Inconvenient Truth came out with Al Gore and Planet Earth series from David Attenborough. And so that kind of sparked my interest as well to dive a bit more into, you know, climate change and this massive issue that scientists have been talking about for decades and we've done very little to address it. So that early on, you know, sparked my interest in that. And it wasn't until a few years later, after kind of attempting to kind of go down the route of environmental technology, a little bit of work in solar panels, I went back to school to do a master's degree. And at that point, the focus was likely, you know, at the time intended to be around environmental technology as well. How do we get more solar panels? How do we decarbonize? And I still care about those things. But it was really just a course or two in. I had to do a case study specific to agriculture and food systems. Before that, I probably never even really came to the topic much. I was eating the typical Western diet. You know, I suspected some things would be beneficial on the food side for overall the environment. I think I held some of the common beliefs of, you know, I think the best thing you can do is eat local food, you know, that travels less. It intuitively makes kind of, you know, kind of sense, right? Uses less carbon dioxide, certainly, in terms of travel. So, and, and we could talk about that a bit more. But uh, yeah, those are some of my beliefs. And then I quickly realized that there's massive issues in agriculture and food systems. It's the largest driver of biodiversity loss and habitat loss. It's the largest user of land. It also has the opportunity to, of course, free up land, reforest the earth, rewild the earth, bring back biodiversity, draw down carbon. And, you know, I, I just realized that no one's really talking about this. No one's really addressing this. This was, you know, six, seven years ago. And of course, there has been people talking about this, but it hasn't had the kind of widespread media attention that it's starting to pick up and get more of now. Yeah, that was 
like I said, it was six, seven years ago. And then I've since focused all my time and energy kind of researching in that space, focused my thesis work on kind of looking at the specific greenhouse gas question about how much specific direct greenhouse gases come from animal agriculture. And then since I've kind of widened a lot of the research into land use, biodiversity, some of the other kind of planetary boundaries that would come up with food systems. And yeah, I've done that through conservation work, nature organizations I've worked for, my own work and research, and really just writing and reading about the topic any chance I get. So that's kind of been a little bit of my journey, I guess. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like I studied environmental engineering, so giving away my age, something like 20 something years ago. The animal agriculture or agriculture in general just wasn't even mentioned. It's bizarre when you think about it. Like, like you said, it's the, like if I look at animal agriculture, leading cause of biodiversity loss globally and locally in Australia, it's the leading cause of deforestation, ocean dead zones, massive water consumptions, et cetera. But it, as part of an environmental engineering degree, and I'd speculate environmental science degree, not even mentioned. And it's only been sort of the last probably six or seven years around the documentaries, the Netflix documentaries or other similar ones that have actually raised attention around this issue. But having said that, the message is often confusing and there's a lot of different narratives, et cetera. But what I really like about your work is it's very much science focused. It's you know, regardless of your personal opinions or biases, and we all have them, you very much focus on the science, independent peer-reviewed study, and provide a really good explanation to Joe Public, like me and others, to, I guess, synthesize the information and make it an informed decision. Why do you guys think that it wasn't mentioned in your studies and earlier on? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that necessarily. I think the media played a role in this. Like, Media and governmental attention has been largely on carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. And there's some good reasons for that, of course. Long term, that would be one of the biggest issues that we need to deal with when you're looking at just the climate. But it was almost like an inability for the public to understand the wider issues of the environment. And that goes beyond climate change, of course. It goes into waste. It goes into plastic waste, all the other planetary boundaries that you know you could think of. And I think that's happening now. I think there's now the environmental issues is mainstream and, you know, there's some issues with that. There's a whole lot more greenwashing happening. There's any business you can think of from some of the highest emitting, most damaging ones that are looking to kind of get on board with this as a way of selling more and doing more of the same business, maybe just making small little tweaks, you know, to get like a social license and say that they're doing something better. So, I mean, that's all very fascinating to me how that's happening too. This is why I'm kind of glad I've also dived into a bit of how economics and business works as well within that, because there's so much manipulation happening and misinformation and it's motivating to me to kind of help do my part to kind of communicate what the science shows in that space and happy to change my, my mind and position when I read good quality stuff that's, that's new and convinces me otherwise. So I think that's kind of a benefit of having that kind of scientific lens when looking at that because you're not necessarily stuck to that particular position, but you can be kind of flexible. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. From my perspective, it, like, and it touches on what Nicholas has just said, like there's always a vested interest in the status quo to basically keep things the same. There's a lot more money to basically just do what we've always done. And I think as part of an engineering degree or a science degree, often we want to just focus on the engineering. We We think we can basically engineer a solution and any problem is an engineering problem whereas this is so multifaceted it involves cultural changes it's also sort of putting a, a lens on our what we do culturally socially and it's also having a bit of a sort of a closer look at farming practices and that's a very unpopular thing to do like uh, you know we all know farmers across the planet do it tough and it's a very difficult job high risk high stakes and to sort of even provide a hint of potential criticism or suggested room for improvements is very 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 unpopular, I think. I think it's got to do with, you know, if you, if you look back, agriculture, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, has been the backbone of the country. You know, the good old, I'm talking specifically about New Zealand, for instance, you know, like the sheep and beef and the, the dairy that, you know, they're the ones that contributed to the GDP. So, you know, it's very hard. I think it's been very hard traditionally to, to knock something that's such a big beast, you know, and certainly here in Australia, it's the same. So, look, I... I think it's one of those things, as you said before, Brad, that the status quo has been easier. And if I look back and think about plant-based diets, for instance, it's only really been in the last 10 years 
where we've started to see a conscious movement around eating more veggies and and you know we'll get to it about the whole vegan movement etc but Nicholas what I'm keen to understand can you give the listeners an overview of the link between agriculture and land use yeah okay so let's start from where it started let's go back to the agricultural revolution right so let's talk back about what actually happened how we structured societies right when we managed to cultivate crops domesticate animals instead of hunt them this resulted in several decades of deforestation of you know releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and of course it didn't happen to the speed and extent of the industrial revolution but this is often not talked about in terms of we did a whole lot of deforestation and damage even before that several hundred years before so there was a study in 2018 that showed since the agricultural revolution we've released the equivalent of 1400 billion tons of co2 and that's equivalent to 40 years worth of our current fossil fuel emissions and i'm making those comparisons just to kind of get a scale and understanding of what we've done with food systems and land not to make an either or scenario we need to address both fossil fuels and animal agriculture and other sectors as well but yeah you can't forget about that so talking about overall land use now we've now really changed our earth completely about half of all habitable land is used for agricultural specifically and of that land it's not evenly used for all different types of food over 80 percent the ranges in studies show about 75 to 83 percent of all that agricultural land is used for animal agriculture and the majority of that would be grazing so grazing ruminants specifically mostly cattle and then a secondary would be for growing feed crops you know that's a likely more fertile land that you're growing feed crops on but you know the amount of confined animals has increased substantially over time and you just need to grow more soy and more corn and more other grains and crops to feed them and help them grow to a slaughter weight quickly you know people think soy is a bad crop necessarily and i think that's happened for a few reasons i think you know there's a health argument for why people think that's not so good but the environmental aspect for why people think soy is not good environmentally is because we grow over 80 percent of it to feed into confined animals and on all that land you're growing that that's going to be intensive that's going to be the most industrial process you can you can do that on because soy is not it soy itself is not a a bad crop to grow it's a legume it can fix nitrogen it can be grown in terms of like a conservation agriculture style so going forward we have two kind of scenarios we can if we if the the poor and medium income countries as they get richer typically you eat more meat typically you eat more animal source foods that's just what's happened over time and say this happens and say not even saying we shift to something like regenerative agriculture or kind of more eco-friendly forms of of raising meat but say the exact same type of meat it would be equivalent to increasing the amount of land of all of africa and australia combined in addition to what we already do so the other scenario of course is if we shift to more plant-based diets maybe it's even plant-rich diets like you jeremy right like it's it doesn't need to be a perfect scenario here but as much as possible and i think we can do that relatively easy to at least get started like you know i can talk about the ways i think we can maybe get into that later but say we shift plant-based at least in rich countries maybe 80 90 percent of people's diet comes from plant-based foods we would reduce the equivalent of 3 billion hectares of land at least and that's the size of the equivalent of all of the continent of, of africa so it's a substantial amount of land these are two kind of options we have for the future we ultimately need to feed you know 10 billion plus people that is projected to be here by 2050. so i don't see any other scenario i don't see how we're going to do that with any other type of farming unless it's shifting away from animal source foods and more lower on the food chain you could say but you know, for many of the reasons too, it could be a good switch for health and for other reasons as well. So this is kind of the land use situation. This is the choice we have to make. But generally speaking, how does the, the land use take, and I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but how does the land use take for a, a plant-rich diet or plant-based diet compared to a, a conventional, typical animal omnivore source diet? I mean, if you compare plant proteins, such as beans, peas, lentils, beef requires, 20 times more land about 
And that's everything I say, all these stats I say, I don't just make these up, by the way. These are all based on things yeah. that I've, I've read, and I'd, I'd be happy to provide that in the notes as well. So that was from a study from Joseph Poor and Thomas Nemechek, one of the largest meta-analyses on food and agriculture. And it also used about six times more water in terms of you know beef alone. But even other types of food, so say compared to a chicken, chicken would still use more land because you still need to feed a lot more, but it'd be less. It'd be less than, say, beef or larger animals, even less than, than pigs. So yeah, shifting to that would be key. In terms of land use, like the number one switch you can do if you're looking at all your types of foods is shift away from beef and dairy. Looking at the global beef cattle population, not even necessarily factoring in, in dairy, but that uses over 60% of all agricultural land and only returns about 2% of global calories or 5% of global protein. So it's using tons of land and it's very inefficient. And it's also, you know, the, the leader in emissions from methane from food systems. So that would be the first place to start in terms of land and most other metrics too. And that's a staggering statistic, yeah, 60, obviously. 60 and I'm sure, and I'm sure you could. Five yeah. percent—that's quite a big. Mm, yeah, scary. but obviously, there's different ways to produce beef. So, there's obviously—I guess I'm keen to get your thoughts on what is the best way to potentially produce beef. You know, there's regenerative, adaptive, multi-paddock grazing, etc. You know, what does all these different methods mean for land use, yield, methane production, soil health, biodiversity, etc. So let me walk you through some of the thinking in the environmental space first. So the United Nations FAO, that's one of the first reports I read that really sparked my interest in this topic. The FAO is, you know, a very animal agriculture oriented organization, but it's very well referenced. They produce a lot of quality work, but their modeling and their funding, they still receive from the International Meat Secretariat. So they're, and, and others too. So they're really looking for solutions within animal agriculture and not looking at plant-based diets really at all. But within that sector, over the last several decades, their main solution has been intensification for animal agriculture. And there's, there's reasons for that. If you're looking strictly at the environment, intensification of chickens, pigs, cows, for, or, or even cows for dairy, this gets the animal to slaughter weight quicker, which means you need to feed them less food and they, they get bigger for more meat. So it's all about yield and it's all about space and reducing emissions. Now, obviously this comes with all kinds of other trade-offs. This comes with likely horrible animal welfare. It comes with increased risk of zoonotic diseases, increased risk of pandemics from that. They usually are fed all kinds of antibiotics as like a preventative care instead of even to address illnesses, but just knowing that with this confinement, they're going to require it and it's going to help them not only not get sick, but also grow to that weight quicker without having issues. But of course, that brings lots of issues in the end, because the more you feed antibiotics to these animals, the more risk of antibiotic resistant bacteria. And I mean, people can just look that up. There's all kinds of issues with, with that. So I don't blame people for wanting to find alternatives to that, right? That is not the solution. It may bring some benefits on the environmental side, but that's not the way we should be getting food to our table. So then there's huge movements to shift to free range, grass fed, grass finished beef, more pasture raised animals. Starting first with like pigs and chickens. I mean, they're not ruminants. They can't just eat grass. Pigs especially require a significant amount of crops to grow to a weight that would be economically viable for a farmer. So unless you're just going to give them food scraps and have them live several, several years on a farm until they get to a weight that you want to sell them to be killed for, for meat, I mean, farmers can do that, but that's not going to be a viable business. There's not even close to any examples that are doing this on any sort of commercial scale. So then when you look at cows, there's of course a huge array of different spectrums of ways you can raise cows, you know, grass fed cows are are being raised in in brazil and a lot of times in in the united states for example it's very intensive there's a lot of feedlots you're on feedlots for more time there's like this idea that we should shift to grass-fed beef that's what's leading the deforestation in the amazon that's what's leading to ecosystem collapses across the world is shifting to this but then came someone like alan savory I don't know how to put this exactly, but I mean, he's, he's a quack. He's a quack. He did a TED talk that became very, very popular. 
I mean, his history is is alone enough that people should discredit mm-hmm. a lot of his work, but they haven't. He's like the savior to the grass-fed movement. Anyway, we won't even get it, not necessarily, but this has led to a significant movement for different forms of regenerative agriculture. And it's a brilliant marketing term. I would love to have regenerative agriculture. I would love to have agriculture that's regenerative and it's reviving and it's bringing back life to the soil, to animals, to wildlife. Uh, It's amazing. We should do this. But then when you talk about regenerative ranching and including cattle in this, studies after studies show that you're still not going to offset the methane from cows. When you're shifting to more grass-fed beef, grass-finished, you could even say, where they're not even going on feedlots at all, you're going to increase methane for two reasons. You're going to increase it because they're eating a more fibrous diet, and you're going to increase it because it takes longer for them to get to slaughter weight because they're not being fed corn and soy and being fattened up very quickly. Instead, they're eating more what they should eat, which is which is grass. And it, it takes about, it's still a short life. It's still, it's about 30 months of life versus like 20, but that makes for a lot more methane and a lot more land. If you're comparing from say typical continuous grazing and grass fed more time in pasture, but still maybe feedlot stage in the end, that's like the typical model of what's happening in, in Brazil and elsewhere when you talk about grass fed beef, but regenerative adaptive multi-paddock grazing is, you know, a new way of doing it where you're fencing off different areas, not having them overgraze. And in turn, that uses two and a half times more land than even the typical grazing. And that was a study from uh, researcher Jason Roundtree and Paige Stanley and others that was modeled after the farm White Oak Pastures. That's the number one Allen Savory hub in the world. And it's, you know, an example they like to use as what to consider for this. And, you know, in terms of soil degradation, it's much better than continuous grazing, but compared to what? None of these studies will compare to what was natively in that place before. It's not comparing to the forest, the wetland, the, even the grassland. If it's a native grassland, let it be a native grassland and bring back native animals that were displaced from that area. Bring back bison if they were there in the native area before in the American West they would bring all kinds of more ecological benefits. In the case of bison, there's still ruminants, so there'd still be some methane, but there'd be less. And the knock-on effect of other biodiverse benefits of having native animals going through lands like that would be far better. So yeah, those are a quick rundown of the different scenarios of what's happening. All those scenarios, even the best form of regenerative, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, adding in other forms of conservation agriculture, like compost, polycropping of different crops, that would still not be beneficial as beneficial as doing conservation agriculture of just plants. You mentioned the regenerative agriculture, and it seems like the holistic grazing or other sort of buzzwords, basically using cows as a key part of regenerative agriculture, basically trying to ride on the coattails of regenerative agriculture. And I think fundamentally regenerative agriculture is a good policy or practice, but how can we essentially just farm plants more regeneratively, potentially without the use of ruminant animals like cows? If we did farm plants regeneratively, what would that mean in terms of land use, methane, soil biodiversity, et cetera? Okay, so yeah, let me get into this, but I just thought of something else. So I listened to a few other your podcasts too, and I saw the podcast that Corey Hancock did and mentioned mm-hmm. me in my review of Kiss the Ground. And mm-hmm. as you know, we've discussed back and forth, him and I, about mm-hmm. different things on this topic. Generally, it started out being very great, but then it just turned into not following the logical sciences out there and getting into more business models. He mentioned he didn't know where a stat that came from, from something I quoted on the review I did with Simon Hill mm-hmm. on Kiss the Ground. The stat I used was we would require a 73% reduction in beef per person, available per person in the US. And I didn't just throw that stat out. He could have easily looked that up. It was in the show notes. It was in the the review I did on the topic, the article I published on the topic related to Kiss the Ground. And that was from Harvard researcher Matthew Hayek and a Boston University researcher published in IOP Science, one of the top credible journals in, in the world. And what they did is they just basically modeled they modeled a nationwide transition from grain to grass finished systems in the United States. And they didn't necessarily look at regenerative agriculture, but if they did, it'd be a lot worse because we're using even more land. So yeah, just for the scale of land, like land is such a huge topic in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And if we were to 
shift to even better forms of regenerative agriculture, there's just not enough land on the planet to meet the current demands. So one thing I have appreciated that he does and some others do now is they say, well, we still need to eat less meat. We still need to shift to plant-based diets. And then we were getting a bit more in reality of what we're talking about here. So what's left, we can kind of go in those scenarios where people will not shift. We're not going to change this use of land for that. Then we can look in those scenarios. But as you know, and I'm sure you both have seen, the business models that are following these kind of regenerative meat brands, the people advocating for it, it's not coming with that message to first shift to as far yeah. as possible to plant-based diets. Yeah. Yeah, you bang on. That message, like I see a lot of the cattle industry or, or beef industry, you know, celebrating regenerative agriculture and, and holistic grazing and making various claims. But fundamentally, as you pointed out, it does require, if we were to achieve this on a mass scale, and we, uh, fundamentally we would need to, we do need to reduce the consumption of animal products. That's fundamentally that's just fact but no one within those industries is talking about that clearly because they've got a conflict of interest around they've got a product they want to sell exactly i mean like you guys have just indicated that hey jeremy you've got to you know reduce your meat intake by 73 percent now these guys are just going to be thinking well that's revenue is going to go down by 73 percent of course they've Mm. got a conflict of interest but then wouldn't meat if, if, if we all did that in the world wouldn't the price of meat then go up well, that's, that's a really good point, Jeremy. And that's, that's why some people don't even venture into this topic of regenerative ranching, because they know that the, the better regenerative ranching does, ultimately it's going to lead to higher price meat. I don't necessarily believe in that theory of it, because I think in the meantime, we're going to continue to erode all kinds of ecosystems that we need in getting there. And as we know, across the world, there's massive subsidies that are going into reducing the cost of animal source foods. There's all kinds of environmental externalities that are not factored into the price of what it is we buy for food. So I think if we go that route and we don't talk about the issues of, say, shifting to something like regenerative meat, then it would take a while for the price of meat to actually go up and reflect in the marketplace. And I think that's too long. I think we'd need to address that before that. But I think that's also why people like me are not talking about that. Like there's lots of other advocates that are big advocates of plant-based diets, but they don't talk about regenerative ranching. And maybe they just don't want the abuse, the abuse that I get, right? From all the different people that uh, take offense with what I say. But I try my best to keep it evidence-based when I say it. Yeah, and you do a good job. And I have to, I have to admit, I scrolled through some of your social media posts, and and you do cop a fair whack of criticism. And I'm keen to know how you handle that. But I'll come back to my original question I had before around why do we need cattle or cows or animals to refarm regeneratively? Is that a key part of regenerative agriculture, or can we do it without animals? Yeah, we don't need it. We don't need it. Just like in the ecosystems, we don't need manure to apply to, to native ecosystems. They do quite fine on their own. And, you know, they're using it for some ways that make sense. Like it's a bit of like a technology they're using the cows as. Cows are not native to most areas, right? They're brought in. And the benefits they would be providing would be, you know, kind of trampling the soil, eating either whether it's the grass or it's some supplementation. Certainly in colder climates, there's a lot of hay that's brought in from off farm. And then that manure, it's, it kind of works a little bit like a compost system, but you are still losing nutrients when you're converting, like, say, grass or feed into manure. You are losing quite a bit. But that is a, a way to fertilize your land. Now, what's happening across the world is we're just swimming in manure. We have so much of it, and we really don't need any more. Luckily, in like the extensive cattle grazing operations, it's usually fine. There's not going to be a whole lot of runoff but then using far more land. So like there's trade-offs there and that doesn't quite work. And yeah, like some people look at manure like it's magical. Like it's really, it's really not. Like it's, <laughs> you can totally grow crops quite well without manure or synthetic fertilizers. Like there's often that kind of like false dichotomy saying, well, if you're not going to use a manure and you're not going to do organic, then you're going to be using synthetic fertilizers and that's going to poison the land and all these pesticides and fertilizers come back from, you know, the time in the war. And that's where this all started from. And I get that. And I also don't like a lot of that side either. And I don't support this synthetic fertilizer side. What I support is we need to shift as far as possible on that side as well to conservation agriculture. And in the literature, that's, that's defined as mostly stock free. So mostly manure free organic fertilizer. Some would call it veganic agriculture too. There is some drawbacks to that. 
you know, the time it takes to create compost to fertilize the soil, it's longer. It's longer than manure. So, but typically just to kind of back up a bit for anyone who's never heard of that style of farming before, they're using green manure, they're growing cover crops, you're using food scraps, plant materials, things that are around the ecosystem where you're farming to help fertilize the soil. Usually mulch, usually wood chips. Really you're feeding the soil with the nutrients that it had there before. You're also just growing crops with it. And it's a bit of a knowledge intensive practice, but it's a practice that goes back to many, many indigenous populations across the world and they've done quite well with it. So it's not necessarily new. It's not like a privileged way of farming either. We have a huge issue with food waste, of course. And we also have facilities to deal with food waste for a bit. Like there's increasing compost systems in municipalities. It wouldn't be that difficult to repurpose a lot of these already compost facilities you know, don't allow adding meat and animal source foods to it. I think a lot of places already don't allow bones to be put in compost systems. Mm. But you could do that and add some grass and, and native areas with it to create some very high quality soil compost to use in these veganic farming systems. And that would speed up that whole process immediately and make it much more likely to scale. So the reason why I'm kind of talking about that stuff is because I'm doing a lot of research on that right now. We're, we're looking to publish some evidence measuring the, the carbon drawdown on firms like this. And also just comparing to how much you get for yield in terms of food from that type of firm, this firm this way, relative to how much land you also free up. So in many ways, it's a win-win. It's not a perfect system. It's not, you know, no one's going to jump at going to this system right now without any sort of support. Like we know farmers need support to kind of get there, but it's certainly something to you know, be part of that regenerative agriculture message. And really it's probably the true regenerative agriculture is this style. Yeah. It's staggering. Like if I can share a personal story, like I, I used to be a sewage treatment plant operator and I'm amazed there's this idea that poo is this secret magical ingredient that we need more of. Man, we are, like you said, we've got so much poo that, or, and which we, which we either discharge straight to rivers and waterways all the time, or we're creating sludge, which is generally put to landfill. And the, the idea that we need poo to farm is bizarre. Like my dad's side of the family is a lot of farmers. There's no cattle involved in all their farming practices. If I look at my little backyard in, in suburban Brisbane, I've got a tiny backyard. There's no cows. I've got, I've got no room for cows or pigs or sheep, but I grow a lot of food. I've just recently harvested four massive bunches of bananas and I've got a freezer packed full of bananas, which will make the best smoothies on the planet, which Jeremy can attest to. But And, and, and then the whole conversation, the regenerative agriculture movement seems to forget about this very critical gas called methane. Methane is a hugely potent greenhouse gas which unfortunately ruminant animals like cows belch and fart a lot of and that essentially the climate change impact of that emissions dwarfs what could ever be sequestered in the soil it's quite bizarre but aren't they looking at and in particular Corey, i was looking through some of the stuff the other day you know if you feed seaweed to cattle then it dramatically i don't know that you'll probably know the actual samples but it reduces the amount of methane that comes out and do nicholas do you know that fact or can you share any insight on that one? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yeah, I've been following the research on that quite closely, and it's interesting. The research it looks like red seaweeds, seaweeds that are farmed on you know warmer coasts, have some anti-methanogenic properties, and the way that happens is. In the gut, it creates like a chemical called bromoform. And bromoform, two things about that. One, it is an ozone depleting substance. 
it's probably not going to be any sort of level that would be of concern, but one factor that in. So that's what it's creating. It's basically turning that kind of methane into bromoform. Two, it's carcinogenic. So, you know, the cows are probably not living to, you know, a life that that would, you know, show up, but that's also something to consider. And then the actual kind of media attention of this kind of seaweed will solve the methane issue with cows. That's just been complete nonsense. And I'll tell you why. If you get this seaweed feed additive and one, it's not going to work for cows on pasture. All cows are on pasture at some point, right? The feedlot intensive stage is typically towards the end, like towards like the end of the, the year of life, the one year of life. And that's where you're going to add in some, some seaweed additive. It's been shown in studies they don't like it, so you can't easily add it. You need to add it into some mix you already have. But then if you look at the lifespan of a cow and, and when methane is emitted and how much is emitted, the stats that come up, the stats that I've seen other people share, say we can reduce methane from cows by 80% or 90%, you know, and it's just a, you know, feel good message. It's, it's news that people want to hear. If you factor in the methane from when they're on pasture with the total lifespan, the end result is about 8% reduction in emissions, not 80, 8. There is a great article on that published in Wired by a number of good researchers that really just did the quick math on this. It wasn't very complicated. It was very easy to see. So this news came out of, if I can share one more tidbit on that, the you know carbon offset, that's a huge part of this environmental movement right now. We're, we're trying to offset our emissions. There was a company in Alberta, Canada, a one-person company who said they're going to grow seaweed and feed it to cows in Alberta. This is the area that raises the most cows in Canada and also exports a lot to the United States as well. It's like the Texas of Canada. So yeah, this one-person company applied to be part of these carbon offset schemes. The largest oil pipeline in Canada, Trans Mountain Corporation, it's a federally funded pipeline. They bought a number of these carbon offsets from this company. And this person ended up getting $5 million from Emission Reductions Alberta, like a government subsidized program. I think upwards of $10 million. It's unsure exactly where that money came from, but there's about $15 million in this company. This company is not operational. This company cannot grow that red seaweed on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. It's colder coasts. They do about like brown seaweeds. They've modeled this with brown seaweeds to see if that has that same kind of anti-methane effect. It doesn't, if any. So then you're talking about, okay, only growing red seaweeds on warm coasts and transporting it around the world to get it to a billion and a half cows across the world. What's that going to do to the coastlines of, of warm areas? I mean, I love seaweed. I think there's all kinds of great purposes for it. I think it would be amazing if we could use seaweed to just restore ecosystems with the native seaweed that's there. And at least a majority of it, like drop it down to the ocean floor for like long-term long carbon storage. But don't use it to feed to cows that can't even offset their own emissions, even come close, to then allow oil and gas companies to yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, pretend yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're offsetting their oil and gas. So yeah, Jeremy, you got me on a tangent here, but this no, this no, is no, just no, some no. recent podcast, news that came out on this it. person. We love a good tangent, and we Jeremy and myself have very strong opinions around offsets because it's something that the stormwater industry, which is the one that we're in, stormwater pollution, has been offsets. In my opinion, are one of the biggest scams of all time, at least in our industry, essentially just allows the polluter to keep polluting. Uh, yep. The money is that's used to offset the existing continued pollution will be used in some flimsy, poorly scientifically backed a solution, which is likely to be highly ineffective and won't achieve anything like what it's supposed to achieve. And there's no monitoring and evaluation as well. So it really just, I think it's a real potential. I'm not saying that all offsets are bad and there's certainly a place for no. them, but there's a really high risk of a lost opportunity, but also just greenwashing and subsequently continued environmental destruction on the back of it. And I have, like, we could talk all day about that sort of stuff, but but yeah, getting back to the the sorry, you go, Jeremy. No, I, I just want to cover off Nicholas on, on what you said there before. I find that really interesting because mm. 
you're saying it's only the the red seaweed and and let's talk about where you can grow that are we talking about pacific islands you know like up near the equator can you grow red seaweed in australia can you grow it in new zealand whereabouts are you talking yeah geographically i can't pronounce that use actual name of i don't have an army but it it is a type of red seaweed it's not all types of red seaweeds but um it is grown in australia okay so that is a benefit to that situation there yeah, and I'm sure okay. that's why people and you know meat advocates in Australia are are promoting this. Yeah, okay. But yeah, even if even if you're able to get that closely logistically, it makes it a bit easier. You know, that yeah. could cover some cows there, but it's not going to offset their emissions, and it's also probably going to just prevent that industry from shifting away and helping mm-hmm. people feel great about eating beef, which, yeah. as as I've already covered, is is the first type of food you should be shifting away from for the environment. And the second part yeah. to this is so let's just think about it holistically. You're saying that basically, I mean, what is a cow's life from from start to finish? About three years, four years? What's no, that? not not that much. Not about even. 30, 30 months. So, yeah, this would be like regenerative, the best type of raising of a cow you could do. The economic viability in, in commercial lifespan of, of that would be 30 months. But typically, a feedlot would be more like 20 months. So okay. just under two years. So, but just going, I'm just trying to nail that down. So say for instance, in New Zealand, you know, I've, my family, they farm big mountains and whatever. So you're saying for the first two thirds of their life, they're out in the paddocks and, and whatnot. And then for that last sort of 10 months, they might go to a feeder farm just to fatten up before they go off to the works. Yep. At that point then, exactly. it's the only point you can put in this seaweed product if you want to. Yep. And so it's only going to reduce the methane emissions for that small time that they're having it. So overall, that's how you get your 8%. So yeah, that's how little, you get that. And there's also a lot of speculation with all that. It's all very brand new. It was a couple of labs that have tested this. And I think there is some, like, it's clear the science is right that it does a little bit. Yeah. But the, how it's but been kind of spun marketed. in media yeah, yeah, is yeah, just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. But like you said, I think the beef industry are like to, like to grab onto anything that gives them a sense of potential. Let's the, the, the status quo is okay. Yeah, from what I understand, you kind of have to feed the seaweed to the cow every day. And if I think it's something like a very small portion of cows are actually in a feedlot environment for their entire life, which is what you'd need to do essentially keep cows confined in a basically factory farm their entire life, which to the point you made before creates a whole bunch of issues around animal welfare, the exponential growth of zoonotic diseases, et cetera, which I don't think anyone really thinks is is good practice in any way, shape or form. Exactly. Look, if if I'm keen to sort of change take a little bit and and I'm just conscious of time and there's a couple of things I wanted to address, but I love what you've done on social media more recently around just addressing some of the the claims around holistic grazing and regenerative agriculture. So I'm going to shoot off about four or five just quick claims that I see. And if you could maybe just give an elevator summary of your thoughts on this claim, that would be really appreciated. So, so Nicholas, number one is one that I often see is the claim that it's not the cow, it's the how. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? It's both, but it's certainly the cow first. I mean, it's not the cow's fault. It's that we've decided to turn it into a, a food system that, you know, logically does not make sense. It uses the most land. It emits the most methane. It's a very heavy animal that requires a lot of supplement, depending on where you are in the world in terms of feed. So, yeah, it is the cow first. And there is ways to optimize and you know, how you farm cows, of course, there's a spectrum to it. And I've already acknowledged that there is ways of improving soil through grazing, but compared to what? There's been studies from the top soil scientists in the world, one from Ratan Lal, and he showed that agricultural lands as a whole store 25 to 75% less soil organic carbon than wild untouched ecosystems. What's the biggest driver hurting wild untouched ecosystems grazing cattle yeah so i don't yeah. buy that situation cool claim number one that's uh, claim number two sorry large mammals have always roamed the earth so cows are just mimicking what's always happened naturally this is great this is like speed round of the things i get on social media <laughs> yes yeah so let's take the example of bison in the american west indeed there was a lot of them bison graze differently than cattle do. They don't like waterways. They 
can forage quite well in the winter don't require uh, like that supplementation if say you were to need to, to farm them. They did emit less methane. A lot of the other ruminants that are used in those examples to say like there is just as much wild ruminants before, a lot of them produce way less methane than cows. So what you're trying to do with cows is, you know, these beef advocates are saying there's been that methane before and now we're just replacing it with domestic cattle that produce that same methane. It's a very narrow lens to, to look at that and make that comparison because there's all kinds of ecological benefits of wild ruminants within a native ecosystem that also have wild carnivores too. Bring back some wolves to these ecosystems that, that had them before. That will be a big benefit to the ecosystem overall. So it's a very simplistic comparison to make those two. I mean, to be clear too, like methane from wild animals, like it's not like that methane didn't matter too. It's just now we're in a situation where we have way too much methane, way too much greenhouse gases as a whole. And we need to find all the human induced ways to reduce greenhouse gases. Well, we don't need to farm cattle. We can do quite well on plant rich or fully plant-based diets. So this is an area we should be looking to reduce methane. And if you reduce methane now, ASAP, you'll see atmospheric results within 10 years, where comparatively, if you stop all carbon dioxide right now, you're not going to see an atmospheric effect for a hundred years. So like, that's a sobering thing to understand. Wow, you need to address is. both and reduce both ASAP. But if we're talking about like climate feedback loops and permafrost melting, that's going to release some more methane. We need to address the climate change issue right now within a decade or two max. So that's why like the IPCC in the, in the latest three or four reports created the urgency and showed the urgency of reducing all forms of methane because they see that that's going to be a way we can kind of at least buy some more time. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah, it's fascinating how there's so much focus on CO2, recognizing yeah. that methane is so much more potent, like I think it's something like 25 to 100 times more potent over a 20-year time frame. So if we want to make a real short-term impact, and we do need one, uh, from my perspective, I, I'd throw all my money at trying to mitigate methane production. And just getting back to that, just to, I guess another point around that balance is that I think there's around 60% of all mammals on the planet are livestock. So 60% of mm. all mammals are livestock, 36% of humans, and only 4% are wild mammals. So the fact that there's some perception that having lots of cows, 60% of all mammals is somehow natural is just so so bizarre to me. It It's almost absurd. But I'll keep charging through some of these. Okay. Another claim. We can't grow crops or veggies, fruit, grains, etc., where cattle graze currently. The only way we can use this land potentially is to graze cattle. That's not true. Yeah, so this is what's called the Yeah, this is the marginal land myth. And mm. it's a very common one. It's a very human-centric claim to make. Like the humans are the center of everything. Like we need to use all land. You know, the way I, I see that based on reading all the research on the topic of marginal land is there's a lot of overestimations of, or underestimations, I should say, of the types of crops we can grow on slightly degraded land. There's a lot of hardy crops that we can grow, even if it's not necessarily food crops. Crops that would do well in warmer climates like hemp would serve a good mm. purpose. And perhaps we could even use that as a way to get off plastic, right? So there's certainly some some good things to think about there. With you know the other claim of marginal land, it's not marginal to the wildlife that was there before. So just because the land has become a bit degraded, likely from some overgrazing that has happened before, doesn't mean that you can say now that grazing cattle is the only good way of using that space. You know, because the native animals that could be roaming that place if we shift more to plant-based diets, we'll be better off. And then we could look at rewilding. It can be a bit more of a hands-on type of rewilding to repair that land so it's not quite as marginal as it is now. Another one, almonds, avocado, and soy. They have a bigger impact than animal products. They kill as many, if not more, animals than animal farming. I mean, it's just not true. There's, there's, I mean, you can read any sort of scientific analysis of food and see that that's not true. It is unfortunate that there's some very quality environmental science publications that don't talk about soy for feed and soy for human consumption. 
because it's a huge difference, of course. Like it's around 5% of all soy goes towards all the foods that we eat for human consumption. So yeah, that should separate it out. So I blame a bit of these kind of broad environmental analysis to talk about all crops without separating which ones actually go to animals. But in terms of like water use and things like that, like almonds, of course, are a bit more of a water intensive crop. And typically in California, for example, there's like the, all these examples and scenarios where people say, well, almonds are far worse. But usually when in that case, they're not factoring the alfalfa that's grown specifically for dairy cows and exported for dairy cows elsewhere, that's usually exponentially more than even almonds. So, mm. Yeah. And look, as a side note to that, like your website, plantbaseddata.org, is a wonderful reference for finding out more information. But there's a, the one website I know you refer to is Our World in Data, and they do a very good breakdown based on independent peer-reviewed science published in journals, et cetera, around the water, land, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, associated with individual products. And to your point, yeah, animal products, beef in particular, but also dairy, lamb, et cetera, the emissions and the land and water requirements just dwarf any sort of plant-based product, including almonds, which people love to talk about. I guess the last one I was keen to talk about, and I have seen you comment on this recently, which has been fantastic, is the claim that eating locally is more important than what you eat. Yeah. So if you're looking at beef specifically, 1% of beef's total footprint comes from the transportation. And if you're looking at the wider kind of food space as a whole, it's more around like 5 to 10% of all the emissions from, from food, from farm to plate, comes from transportation. And... This is a bit of a tricky one, and I've covered this before, and this is one where I do post something on this. It usually gets the most kind of mm. adverse reactions immediately because, of course, there's some reasons to eat local. I get it. Like, you're supporting community, typically better for the economy. You typically know a bit more of where your food comes from. But in working in the wider environmental space outside of necessarily just food and environment, it's the most pervasive claim. And it's the one I believed before too, that like if you buy local food, you're helping the environment. It's just not true. What you want to do in food is reduce your deforestation footprint, reduce the footprint of habitat loss and land use and greenhouse gases overall, including methane, water waste, eutrophication, acidification. These are all things you want to consider with food really the wider planetary boundaries. So just because you bought something next door doesn't mean it's eco-friendly. And then once you're kind of eating more plant-based, seasonal plant foods, that makes sense. Buy those locally. But even if you're looking at plant foods, if you're wanting to buy all local plant foods all the time, that might not necessarily be the solution either. Because if you're in like a colder climate and perhaps they have greenhouses, Perhaps there's using some energy to warm it up to grow tomatoes year round. You're going to have a much higher energy footprint than if they were shipped, you know, typically by most food is, is shipped by either boat or, or truck. It's only about, I think it's about 1%. There's a good, there's a good article on that on our world and data and it showed how much of food actually gets to us by plane. And yeah, it's very, very little, but you know, around that whole topic too, if, just to wrap that up, like it's. There should be more transparency around food as a whole. And the idea that we don't know when we go into a grocery store, whether something arrived there by plane or not, like that's a problem. We don't know whether something resulted in massive deforestation in the grocery store and consumers don't know. And that's a problem that should be labeled. People should be aware of all that. That's really interesting you say that. So, because I've always, just from the mainstream media, I've always assumed if you buy local, you're dramatically going to reduce your, 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 your footprint because it's just coming from down the road. But you're saying it's only going to reduce it. So what's the actual figure? 1%. If it's beef, it's 1%. If it's most other foods, it's around 5 to 10%. Wow. So that's your, that's your ecological, that's your greenhouse gas footprint, right. your carbon yeah. footprint of food. Yeah. What about other animals? What about venison, deer, for instance? They typically graze up in mountains. What are they like for greenhouse emissions? Yeah, I mean, if they're ruminants, they're going to be providing, they're going to be emitting some methane. In terms of like the analysis of like, you know, farming them, I don't really have that data necessarily available. But yeah. if you're comparing to say, you know, someone going to hunt them, I think one of the main issues with that from the environmental perspective is like the scalability. Like, are we going to feed major cities through hunting? Like, we're just not. 
Yeah, that's a whole topic well, on its own, which well, I think is going to stir up a lot of things around yeah, hunting. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, I'll, well I'll, probably, I'll probably get into trouble with my family for saying this, but no, my family, they farm venison. You know, they, they've mm-hmm. got hundreds, if not thousands of deer, wild deer on, up on their farms, and they go up to the mountains, and they pretty much stay up there all year round. They don't have to come down. They don't have to be as attentive as, say, sheep or cattle. You know, they don't have to pull them in and out of the yards the whole time. But I'm just interested to know what you know what they're like compared to beef. But you know, you obviously. I mean, it would be it would be slightly it would be slightly better for sure. Um, but but not it, a huge it would be better amount. for a few reasons. Not, not a huge amount, and also just like how are we going to feed the world in, in that way? Like, there's obviously little situations in each area of the world where you could make some improvements. But I mean, most of my analysis is like looking at the bigger picture. Like, how are we going to suit regional cultural you know, differences in needs and wants, but also how are we going to feed the world, you know, without destroying it? So that's kind of yeah. Because I, 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 I also know and say, for instance, China, like the, I can't remember what the, the figure is, but the, the annual beef consumption for a Chinese person is something very, very small. But I know in China, it's very hard to farm beef because it's so hot in, in summer and yet so cold mm-hmm. in winter. And what they actually do is they build sort of big commercial industrial type facilities and they actually farm the beef inside so that that in winter it keeps them warm and in summer it keeps them cool but they're all fed on feedlot basis so they're they're, they're never out in the pastures and i know that obviously that population is huge and that's from what you've just told me that's big you know it's just going to dramatically increase the amount of methane that they produce yeah and and you know what the fao would probably love that the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, would say, this is great. This is intensification. This is, you know, I don't know if you've seen those massive pig hotels, they call it in China mm-hmm. too. Like yeah, this yeah. is new industrial ways of farming that get the animal to a slaughter weight quicker and don't use as much land. And, you know, if there wasn't other solutions, if we absolutely needed to eat uh, meat, this might make sense in like a sick twisted way right if you look at like the kind of the issues that come with doing that right but we have alternatives and there's new technology coming that makes these alternatives even better and are replicating tastes and yeah getting to different different ways to make it easier so look fundamentally nicholas we still have to eat and obviously we've got a growing population and but we've got these pressing challenges particularly around climate change and biodiversity loss so from your perspective how do we feed the world while mitigating these key challenges i don't have the exact answer to this but there's a few theories of change that i think are promising i think we should increase supporting plant-based alternatives i think we should support precision fermentation, which looks like to be mimicking the taste and texture even better of animal source foods. And, you know, I don't think that needs to be like a centralized system. I think that should be a decentralized, you know, business that allows, you know, some people who have never come to this topic might think this is crazy, but like, I think it's kind of neat that we could have like these local breweries, food breweries, you know, brewing meat in vats. And if anyone thinks that that's you know, gross. I mean, just look at how the meat got to your plate necessarily. It's probably going to be a lot more gross if you look at the details there. So I think there's big potential there. I have no industry ties. I refuse to accept industry funding for this because I, you know, I want to be as unbiased as possible and seen as that. So I don't have any stake in these new plant-based companies, but I see them as a big solution and like an overall environmental solution that every environmentalist should be on board with for the number of reasons. I think if you're looking at like firming it specifically, like shifting gears a little bit, I think we should be shifting away from synthetic fertilizers and manure. Manure is not magical. Let's shift away and look at stock-free organic green manures. I support farmers in doing these practices. Looking at things like perennial grains, So perennial grains is a way of farming grains where, of course, you keep it year after year in the same plot of land. You don't need to dig it up and till it. Much better for for the soil. Keeps the soil covered. And, of course, grains is a huge thing that we farm. So we should be exploring these different types of grains. There's all kinds of different species. There's different things we can try. So I think that's kind of a good practical angle to to support, to to feed the world. And then, like, societal-wide, like, it's still not easy to eat plant-based. 
Like it really isn't. It's gotten easier, but you know, I live in like a, you know, it would be considered like a medium, small to medium sized city and, you know, traveling to some others that are the same. It's gotten better in grocery stores. It's gotten better with plant-based options at restaurants, but it's not welcomed everywhere. It's, it's not accessible everywhere. There's constantly marketing saying the reasons why we should be eating meat, eating processed meat, eating things like that, like that it's natural, necessary, eco-friendly even. So I think if we start treating animal agriculture like we did before with cigarettes, I mean, even other industries like oil and gas, like we need to shift that perception of saying, okay, this is the most damaging way of producing that type of food. So we shouldn't be allowing this ridiculous amount of marketing around the topic. We should be looking at helping people make better choices, not forcing it on people, obviously, but like welcoming it through education, accessibility, subsidies, funding, and support that, you know, subsidizes something that is more eco-friendly. Changing the defaults. If you, if you simply just change, like there's been good behavioral research on this. If you, if you change the default at schools, healthcare facilities, government buildings, events to a plant-based option, most people will welcome that and they'll like trying something new and they'll even choose it next time. And I think those kind of small societal shifts, once we get to over 20, 25% of people kind of on board with that, you'll see a bit of a tipping point. And just like changes we've seen in the past, I think it's entirely realistic that we could shift more in that direction and nothing would be better for the overall kind of planetary system. That's so interesting. Yeah. And just sort of on a personal note, so you're obviously in this space, you're, be, you're outspoken, you're on social media, you're doing various media sort of outlets, you're being criticized. You, you seem to be doing this work for free as well. You've set up this wonderful resource, uh, theplantbase.org, and doing all this, all this sort of free talks and media sort of publications, et cetera. And meanwhile, you still got to pay the bills. I guess, how do you manage your own health? Because you're putting yourself <laughs> out there, not really no financial reward, and getting slammed, you know, at least part of the time. How do you manage your own health? How do you keep smiling? <laughs> I meditate. You know, I meditate and I, I don't take anything personally that happens there. In terms of like how I do this, like I, I've worked in the wider environmental space for the past seven, eight, nine years. And like I just helped launch a Canadian climate center specific on climate adaptation. Very little of that is related to food. Maybe about 25% of that is related to food. That's uh, specifically what I was doing a lot of the time over the last few years. We have received some funding for this, but they're nonprofit charitable donations that are not industry tied. And it allows us really just to kind of do this a bit, have a small team of volunteers. There's not even like a big thing here. And really, this is something I did before for free. This is something that like, you know, I just enjoy learning about different things and attempting to communicate it in a way that's successful and you can kind of understand it. There's all kinds of scientists out there looking to do complicated analysis and add to the scientific literature. And I think that's important. I think we also have enough of that. I think we need a lot more people that are looking to be science communicators and writers and, and scientists that are not afraid of being activists too and speaking out and getting involved with government and policy. Because if you don't, you're going to have all kinds of lobbyists that are involved that and business interests that are looking to shift it in their direction. So I just don't think that's the solution. So it's more of like a, a motivation to continue doing it in that way. And so far, so good. Mate, I'm a, I'm a fellow meditator myself. What type of meditation do you do, Nick? It's not a, any specific type. It's very not habitual. It's as much as I can. Nice. There's been periods of time, there's been four or five months at a time where I'm doing it every single day. And then there's periods of time where I don't, and I feel it when I don't. Yeah. I'm more, I'm more yeah, yeah, yeah. reactionary with things, right? Yeah, it just yeah. allows to yeah, yeah. you know be a bit more chill with it, right? Not take everything too seriously, you know? Um, well, have a look at Vedic meditation. That's what I do. 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon, dude. So jump on and have a look at that after this. 
I love it. And I feel like I just described meditation in like the most unphilosophical way possible, but uh, there's obviously like, a, like a, an amazing component to that too, which I appreciate as well. But yeah, there, there's certainly practical tips to it as well that make it great. Oh, look, you're doing a great job being a, an environmental researcher and advocate. You don't have to be a Zen Buddhist monk at the same time. So, uh, But look, that's great to hear. And look, from my perspective, whatever you're doing is working. And I, I really take my hat off to you. I think you're doing a, a wonderful job effectively communicating doing the research, backing up, you know, the, I guess, with the evidence space to support, I guess, other discussions. Like, I know I, I personally use your resources all the time in my sort of advocacy and on my behalf. I'm sure I'm not alone. So, from that regard, on behalf of all the sort of angry vegans and the not-so-angry vegans and everyone in between or everyone just trying to be a little bit more informed, thank you so much for all your efforts. And also, on a personal note, thank you so much for coming on our podcast yeah. today. It's been a Thanks, wonderful man. opportunity. For people who are keen to learn more about you, what's the best resource? What's the best way to communicate with you? They can connect with me on Instagram, Twitter. That's mostly where I am for social media. My emails are on there too. Find me at plantbaseddata.org where yeah, we're adding peer-reviewed studies, you know, daily, doing summaries on it. They can be contacted through there. Yeah, lots of different people contact me. And there's also lots of uh, amazing positive feedback too, which is which is great to hear. It's not all the Instagram and Twitter type comments that I get. <laughs> although I think I kind of poke a little bit at people too, because uh, I'm a bit of an instigator too with that. So I'm happy to be to play that role a bit. But yeah, people can reach out anytime. As I did. This is how this podcast came about. I reached out to you on Instagram and said, look, uh, love to have a chat. And here we are. But look, thanks so much again, Nicholas. Keep up the great work. And Jeremy, any final words? No, no. Very fascinating track, Nicholas. And I think it'll be a very popular show. Our, our listeners will be very interested in, in hearing what you've got to say. And Look, I feel as if we could have spoken for a couple more hours. Mm. So, uh, look, we really appreciate your time for coming on our We Show. And, mate, if we could speak to you again in the next couple of seasons, it'd be wonderful. We'll see where we're at. And, yeah, as I said, just thanks very much for coming on. Good stuff. Thanks a lot, guys. Really enjoyed the chat. And, yeah, be in touch. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.